0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, I'm joined by Chris Dorides. Chris, good to Mark. see you. No Marissa, huh?
1: No Marissa today, unfortunately. No,
0: unfortunately. Be back soon. Uh, good. So it's me and you solo. Have we? I don't think we've ever had a podcast when it's just me and you. Mono nope. a mano.
1: That, that's right. That's right. Are you up for this? I'm. I'm. I'm ready.
0: <laughs> Let's go for it. Uh, well. Uh, I should say th- this podcast has really uh, two parts to it. Part one is the what we're doing now. and I think we'll, a lot of economic data came out this week. The Fed met, a lot to talk about. So we'll do that, uh, but we'll keep it relatively short because part two, we have Mark Calabria joining us. Mark uh, was the former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA, the regulator for Fannie Freddie and the Federal Home Loan Bank System, and that. Uh, we we, re- we recorded that part of the conversation earlier today. We got interrupted by a tornado warning. Uh, uh, we all re- kind of scrambled here, <laughs> get, get into the basement. Fortunately, it passed by pretty quickly. I, I don't think a tornado actually has come down, at least not so far. And uh, uh, so we cut that off, but uh, that was a good conversation. We'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. Uh, but uh, here we are. Uh, this is now June 16th, a busy week on the economic scene. Where do you want to begin, Chris? The consumer pricing? I don't know. What, what, there's a lot to pick from. What do you want to chat, chat about? Yeah, there's a lot of
1: data that came out this week some uh, maybe conflicting signals or depending on what part of the argument you'd like to make, you can find data to support your view. Uh, but let's maybe start with CPI because that came out on Tuesday. And overall, I'd say uh, Pretty good report in the sense that CPI is coming in the consumer price index of inflation is is coming in maybe not as fast as everyone would like, but maybe as fast as would be reasonable to expect. Um, so yeah, let's let's dive in there.
0: Yeah, so uh, this is the kind of the way I frame it in my own mind. CPI inflation, consumer price inflation peaked at nine percent on the nose June of 2022 a year ago. We got a data point this week for the month of May, four percent ish. Was it exactly four? I think wasn't it right? Four on the nose. Yeah, year over and, year. Year over. Oh, I should say yeah, year over year. That is important. Uh, and it feels like uh, we can state at least I can state. I'm curious what how whether you would agree that it's going to continue to moderate. Uh, we're headed towards three here towards the end of the year, 3% year over year, and going into next, into the twos. Um, And the reason I'm confident in that forecast is two things. One, uh, vehicle prices now, uh, new vehicle prices are falling, and that'll continue. Used vehicle prices rose in the month, but it feels like they're going to start declining because auction prices are down, and that leads the CPI for used vehicles by several months, and that's going to happen. And More fundamentally, what's happening is we're getting more vehicle production globally, and that's allowing for more inventory on dealer lots and starting to take pressure off price. Second, more importantly, the cost of uh, shelter, uh, housing services, that's going to slow. It's kind of sort of rolled over already in terms of growth rates, but it's going to slow much more noticeably over the next six, nine, 12 months because that will reflect with a lag the fact that rents have gone flat to down. So that feels like the the that's where kind of where we've been over the past year and where we're headed over the next year. Agree, disagree, anything you want to say about that?
1: Yeah, I, general trajectory, definitely agree. Uh, I guess one thing to note is that the you mentioned CPI, the the headline number was 4% year over year, but the core CPI was 5.3%. So a lot of that Decline that we've seen has been really energy driven, right? As energy prices have fallen, and they fell a lot this month, uh, and over the past year as well. So,
0: and food, and I guess that might be energy too, because that goes back to diesel, and diesel was key to food prices. But that that's kind of rolled over here too on a year-over-year basis. Yeah, well, not but to the same still, It's still pretty high, though, right? It's, so, uh, oh yeah, and that's still, a good, another point. Energy prices are down, but all other prices are a lot higher than they were, no doubt about it yeah food is is coming
1: in um but yeah you know, has to come in more to really yep. help it's particularly those lower income consumers that are most exposed yep um, so well, but so uh, i don't but... disagree with the the path i think the the real test is the speed right mm. is it is it going to come in fast enough for the fed to be satisfied that they can indeed be patient or is it, if this continues to slowly come in do they feel like they need to um step on the brakes again and, and slow things down.
0: Right. Right. Um, so uh, I was going to say something. Uh, what was it um, about inflation? Uh, oh, right this respects. is it. And, and it, it I, I should ask, are we going to play the statistics game, the two of us? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. That feels a little weird. weird. Yeah. It's a little weird. So maybe I maybe we should, we can't. Yeah. So I, I'm not... I won't take anybody. I'm not going to be worrying about taking your statistic or my statistic. Yeah, just go for it. Yeah. Go for it. We'll go for it. Okay. (laughs) Do you see the University of Michigan survey today? Came out today.
1: I just saw the headline. It was up a little bit, right? Yeah.
0: But you know what was most significant was inflation, one year ahead inflation expectations. That, you know, the the University of Michigan uh, does a survey every month of consumers. And they, one of the questions is, what do you think inflation is going to be over the next year? It fell sharply. To three point three percent, right? Wow. That's yeah, it, was, it was pretty good. Yeah, last month, right? Right. Now, of course, the thing bounces around a lot month to month, so I'm not sure I, I'd read all. You know, all all of what that would seem to suggest on face value, but it does seem to say that inflation expectations are coming in because, if in fact, the peak was back in early 2022, inflation expectations one year ahead, you Mish was. 5.4 5.5%. So that seems to be moving in the right direction as well. That's a good sign.
1: It is. But is that just gas prices? Right? Oh, are, yeah, a- you know, absolutely. But that's it.
0: key. That's key, yeah, right? So, Yeah, but that's important to wages, right? Because inflation expectations, consumer inflation expectations, which is what this is, drives in significant part wage demands because workers say, hey, you got to compensate me for the fact that I got to pay more to the commute and pay childcare and everything else. So that's, a, that feels like another good sign on the, on the inflation front. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah for sure. For Sure. Again, it's, it's just a
1: question of speed in my mind.
0: Okay. All right. I'm, uh, I am going to play a little bit of the game with you. All okay. Right. On the, All on right. A, a hint, this is inflation. 2.1%. Yeah. What is 2.1%? Uh,
1: that's got to be stripping out some yeah. categories. Maybe if yeah. you strip out, Oh, if you strip out shelter?
0: Yeah, very good.
1: just no, right. shelter. Oh, just, just shelter. shelter. Oh, okay. Shelter.
0: okay. Take CPI, strip out the shelter component, right? Yeah, Year over year, we're at 2.1%, 2. 2.1. And that's two-thirds of the CPI index. One-third is shelter, two-thirds is everything else. Two-thirds is at 2.1%, right? And we know shelter yeah, yeah, costs right. are going to moderate. But again, you're throwing in the energy in there but okay, it okay. Down. but I'm just Pick saying that out as well, <laughs> but, but, but uh, I mean, the shelter component we know is headed South, right? The rate of inflation is headed South It is. 2.1 on the rest of it. So I, you know, it just feels like inflation is moving more definitively in the right direction here. Yeah. You know, you're right. Core CPI was stubbornly high, but that goes back to vehicle prices and shelter. And that's, that is definitely going to roll over. So uh, I don't know. I, I look at that course as you say you see what you want to see but i see a pretty positive inflation number so you take out food and shelter yeah and you're down to one percent oh, okay <laughs>
1: So you know see what you want to see you're
0: speaking my language you're speaking my language all right okay so that then brings us up to the the fed and monetary policy and uh you want to Give folks a sense of you know what happened and how you interpret things.
1: Yeah, so they paused, kind of what we expected. So they did not change the Fed funds rate. Uh, the dot plots, which are the projections of the members of the FOMC, did change quite a bit. So the expectations have come in a bit in terms of um, few, well, I guess no, in in terms of future hikes, they actually went up. Right, the the members right. are expecting one, two, probably two hikes. Additionally, quarter, are point needed each. Here. Yep. quarter point each, yep. Um, and then of course, there's the, the most important part of this is the, the jawboning, the actual comments of, um, chairman Powell. My interpretation is he kind of did what he had to do in terms of saying, we're going to pause now, but leaving the door open, sending a signal that they remain ready to, to hike as needed. Um, perhaps to, to try to calm the market. So that's really the the psychological battle that we're in right now with the markets, trying to get them in line uh, with the Fed. Um, so I think uh, uh, my assessment overall was a good meeting. I don't think he blew it in any sense in terms of the uh, the, the commentary, which has been the case in a couple of these me- meetings over the last year or so.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. They're still in a hard place though, right? Or a difficult place because inflation is coming in, but it's still... Quite high.
0: Yeah, I uh, I was surprised to see the forecast, uh, uh, the dot plots, as you say, now indicating the kind of the uh, uh, consensus of the folks on the FOMC, the policy making committee of the Fed, thinks there's now going to be two rate hikes this year. So we're on the funds rate target, we're a little over five. That that would suggest we go to five and a half to five and three quarters, uh, and it, it you know that doesn't i that wouldn't have been me i would have said you know we've seen all the rate hikes we need to see because as inflation's coming in it's and we know it's coming in with a pretty significant degree of confidence the labor market's easing you, another data point we got this week 262,000 initial claims for unemployment insurance that's the second week in a row 262 is Kind of sort of you don't want to see it go much higher than that, right? I mean, that means layoffs are now if we're around that if that's the actual level of UI claims, you know, it's the folks saying, Hey, I'm unemployed, you know, help me out uh and uh, cut me a check. That's pretty close to you know, where you layoffs are, you know, uh, in a in a reasonably good economy. You don't want any much, much more much weaker than that. Um and job growth, you know, it's been strong, but we just got Data uh, based on unemployment insurance records, the so-called QCEW data, quarterly census of employment and wages, which is what the employment data, the survey data that we look at every month, will be so-called benchmarked to, because that's a, a a full count of employment, and that shows weakness. And it, to me, that indicates we're going to see. And I, it's hard to draw, con, you know, direct line from that QCEW to what the 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 revisions are ultimately going to be, but it feels like we're going to get some downward revisions in these employment gains. So we're not creating 250, 300,000 jobs a month. We may be creating, you know, 150K or uh, 200K, something like that. So it feels like everything is coming into place with a funds rate target of five and five and a quarter percent. And by the way, hey, everybody, I don't know that this banking crisis is over, right? I mean- Right that's a, the next shoot of fall is on terms of credit quality. We're going to start seeing losses on loans made to commercial real estate to businesses, to consumers, and that's going to start to put pressure on the banking system uh, as well, and we don't know how that's going to all play out in terms of uh you know depositors thinking and deposit runs and so forth and so on. So you add that all, all up to me, I go what why two more rate hikes that makes just you know I, that's not my that wouldn't be my forecast
1: i think it i think it goes to communication is I that what
0: it is I, Do you strategic? i don't know that this is
1: there okay in their heart part uh, of the heart yeah you know, forecast this is they're trying to send a message that they're they're not waffling here that they're ready to to go if if inflation should take it maybe these energy you know um, declines that we've seen turn around maybe there's another shock here. they're ready to to act. I think that's what they're fighting against because there's this narrative out there that they're they're going to be weak. They're going to cave, right? They're pausing now and uh, they'll allow a possibility of a stagflation scenario uh, to develop here. So that's how I interpret it, that the dot plots are really about sending a message.
0: Yeah. You know what? That make, makes sense to me. And I think markets interpreted it that way too, right? Because the stock market initially fell when they saw the dot plot. And then by the end of the day, was back in the green. And then yesterday, Thursday, you know, June 15th, it, we had four or 500 points on the Dow, up green, lots of green. So it feels like markets are kind of where you they are. They don't believe right? it. Yeah. They don't believe it. They don't believe two more rate hikes. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you
1: talked about the CMBS. Did you catch the, or the, you talked about commercial rates? Oh, real yeah. There was the commercial mortgage-backed securities delinquency rate report came out this week and that showed... Pretty significant increase, right? So we are already starting to see some of that credit deterioration in the CRE yes. markets, right?
0: Yeah, CMBS—that's uh, the Moody's data based on the uh, commercial mortgage loans that have been securitized. They tracked the delinquency rate on on those loans on those loans in the in the securities, the CMBS securities. That was going to be my uh, game. That was your stat. It, yeah. It, huh. So you you know uh, let me turn it on you what do you, what was the delinquency rate in the month? Oh, my old CBS. can't go look at your screen. Oh, that's not fair. That. <laughs> ah, that's my natural <laughs> four and a half percent. Yeah. Okay. I'm right there so, to the second significant digit. I should have said oh, oh. four point five one. But actually, oh. <laughs> you know that's up me, meaning meaningfully in the month, but it's still incredibly low.
1: You know it is. It is. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you go back in the teeth of the pandemic, it was seven and a half, eight, and at the te- teeth of the, uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, it was ten, ten percent. So still, you know, very, very low. But although that delinquency rate, if you look historically, tends to move pretty fast. When things go yep. south, it goes south fast. That's
1: ones. right. That's right. So this could be the opening salvo, if you will.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, and across at- the
1: board, right? Even apartments got hit. Everything was showing deterioration,
0: right? Industrial held up okay. Re- uh, A little bit better, right? Ho- hotels okay, surprisingly. Okay. Yeah. Self-storage was actually down, I believe. Oh, was it down? Self-storage? Okay. People but, still- oh, it was really office and retail that got, and multifamily to some degree that got got hit. Yeah. Hit the most, yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So um, anything else on the statistic on the economic data that came out the week or anything else you want to say about the Fed? Here's another thing about the Fed. Can I say one yeah. more thing about the Fed? Yeah. Uh, I asked you the question, but I'm going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but I just want to say it again and get your 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 thinking, going back to what the Fed's going to do here. you know, it, My sense is that once inflation's at three and clearly going to cross the line into the twos, that the, the Fed's going to relax uh, considerably because- in the heart of their heart of hearts, if you ask them, you know, what is the appropriate target for inflation? It's not the 2% official number that they have. That was set m- many moons ago in a different kind of an economy. It's more like three, because, you know, if you're at two and, uh, you know, uh, you get into a, a scrape or a recession. You get to the zero lower bound on the funds rate very quickly, and then you start QEing, and nobody that's not very effective, and no one likes doing that anyway. So, you know, uh we get to three, why you know sacrifice the economy to the altar of two when you don't really even believe it? And then the other thing is you got an election coming, which you know, does the Fed really want to play a role in deciding who's gonna be president of the United States? Which I presumably if they push the economy into recession anytime now going here going forward particularly as you move into 2024 you know that's going to have some really significant political implications so so what do you think of those arguments in terms of what it means for monetary policy
1: well i think we've noted before they cannot possibly say three is the new two it, no yeah yeah um, what they can do and what they've already in some sense committed to is say it's a 2% average Right over the cycle. And before the pandemic, we were below two, right? We were we were struggling to get a two percent inflation rate. So that gives you a little bit of cover to say, you know, two and a half is is fine, right? Because we're averaging out over over time here. So I I'd agree that they if they see things coming down, if we're, you know, on the path, glide path, uh towards lower inflation, then they're not going to risk. Or have that motivation to to hike more aggressively just to get us down Mm. to two percent even faster. Um, I'm not sure though that they've abandoned two percent as
0: the ultimate,
1: the ultimate goal. Yeah, that's so ingrained now that
0: yeah, it's. But they come more relaxed about it. I mean, do we have to actually get there? By mid 2024, I mean- No, no, it, I don't think yeah. so. I don't think so.
1: But again, it, it's the path, right? If we're heading path. at three and it's, we're at three and we're gingerly getting down there, we go mm. to nine, to eight, right? It's very mm-hmm. slow. I think they're satisfied with that. Um, do you think they actually cut in that?
0: Uh, no, I think the bar for cutting okay. is high. I think the bar is high. I mean, they do okay. need to get inflation- and I think you're right. They don't want to give up on that target, and they do have some flexibility given the new framework they adopted a couple of years ago. So I don't think they'll do that. Um, uh, I don't think they'll cut until we're you know at at least on a se- month month to month or quarter to quarter basis sequentially around that two percent target on CPI. That's two and a half, by the way, because yeah, that's right construction differences in methodology the methodology constructing these two things. That that the the two percent is the core consumer expenditure inflator which is has different weights and everything compared to the to the CPI. Um yeah. What so
1: three percent th- inflation, but four and a half percent unemployment.
0: Yeah, because four and a half percent unemployment would suggest that we're probably in recession, right? Yeah. I so mean, where are we I mean then they would start cutting. Probably then they would start. I would All right. think. Yeah. All right. I don't know. It's so a close it call. Like, yeah. Yeah. It I mean it because like if it's
1: now is that they're focusing they're gonna shift gears here. And start worrying more about the full employment mandate as well, a guiding principle. Uh, With inflation coming, if it goes to script, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, but if I we're know. sub sub three and it feels like we're going to two, and then you've got it, you're losing jobs and unemployment starting to rise, I say, okay, they start cutting at that okay. point. But in my baseline, no recession, unemployment kind of meanders higher, kind of goes to four ish, something like that. No. I, the, I, I don't think they cut until we're at, you know, within spitting distance of two and a half on the CPI okay. and that in, in my outlook that that, you know, that's probably right around the election day, you know, so they may wait till after that, you know, so again, because they don't want to get, you know, involved in that kind of. You know debate debate discussion yeah. they don't want to be part of that conversation so maybe December of next year that's by the way we have the first cut in March in our in our Baseline forecast and I'm kind of thinking maybe that's too soon too soon you know maybe they wait a little longer than that okay let's end this part of the conversation again with uh, recession probability so what's the probability of recession in your mind for it starting at some point in the next year between now June of 2023 through June of 2024.
1: And this is NBER defined, official, right? So Uh,
0: Job loss, we're losing jobs, you know, unemployment's moving north of four, headed towards five, you know, that kind of thing.
1: uh, 40, 45%, I would say. Oh,
0: really? Okay. That's a little lower. No?
1: That's a little, uh, well, I think it was at 40% by the end of the year.
0: Yeah. And then you were two thirds for next year. Yeah. Okay. I guess
1: I'm, I guess to make it consistent, it should be closer to
0: fifty percent. Is it But is that how you feel? I mean, you don't you don't need to be consistent for me. You can tell me how you feel like right now. No, I, I'm. I, I, I sense a breakthrough here. No, yeah. I'm
1: seeing twenty three. The, the narrative hasn't changed that much. It's still twenty three okay. in twenty twenty three. I don't see it from an official. Even if we're starting yeah. to lose jobs, it's going to take a while yeah. for the MBR to declare a recession. But, but yeah, still two-thirds for
0: next year? Two-thirds for next year?
1: I would say so. so really? It's, the, it's really that second quarter, um, second and third quarter.
0: Second and third quarter of?
1: Of 24 uh, that I would say the recession. Oh, odds are oh you pushed higher. this out.
0: You you just pushed it out, your recession. A little bit. A little it's bit. The, it's the MBER definition. That you I just started. pushed it out a couple quarters. You were end of this year, early next. Now, no? Well, that was like a two quarters ago.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hasn't <laughs> happened yet you got to push it but out
0: <laughs> i'm going to remind you we had a similar kind of conversation back you know 6 months ago and i you said I, we were debating whether recession and i i kept saying okay recession but when and why that's a very difficult thing to do a very difficult thing as we are now learning you know very yes. difficult thing to do but anyway okay i'm i'm still I'm I'm growing more optimistic. I'm telling you, uh, I, I, I'm going to say forty percent probability between now and mid next year. Uh, next year, uh, but it, I, you know, I kind of want to say one third, but I'm not going to say it yet. I'm being strategic right. with this. All right, forty <laughs> percent with an arrow down. Yeah, forty percent with an arrow down. I'm feeling better. And so is the stock market, boy. That stock market's really. Of course it's oh, narrow please, very narrow but
1: please so. tell me you're not using the stock market to predict recession
0: no i'm not but I, to, to, to tell <laughs> me you're not looking at it uh, and it it colors your view you know come on but and there's the a lot of curve, green.
1: just you know forget about it better track record highly inverted
0: well no <laughs> I, no it's, it's you're right but take the <laughs> stock market and add in the corporate bond market my friend And then compare that to the yield curve. Which would you take? Stock market, corporate bond market over here saying no recession, not even close. Yield curve over here saying recession. Which one would you pick? Uh, I got to go with
1: the yield curve. Ah, Track record. Come on. Okay. Okay. All right.
0: I think we're going to call it uh, this part of the podcast quits, but stick with us. We are now going to bring in Mark Calabria. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Talk to you soon. And it's great to have Mark Calabria here uh, on Inside Economics. Good to see you, Mark.
2: Uh, good to see you Mark. Uh
0: I really appreciate you coming on. Uh uh you've had a an illustrious career. Uh, I, I think now you're you're at Cato, right?
2: Back at the Cato Institute. Yeah.
0: And you you were uh bef- uh at Cato before being director of the Oh, well you've well, Before well, maybe I, was I should the stop cuz sure. you you have a, such a gr- wonderful career. <laughs> Let me can you just give us a sense of that? You know, you know your path to where where you are today?
2: Sure, you know, and, and I think it's interesting that from, from my perspective, it really you know even goes back to grad school. Uh, you know, I finished undergrad in the early '90s, and you know, when we, f- we perhaps first started using that term, jobless recovery in the aftermath of the savings and loan crisis. And you know, one of the reasons I went and got a PhD in economics because the job market was so bad at the time. So it's which is one of those things that has always kept with me. Um, but after finishing uh, my PhD, started uh, National Association of Home, Home Builders. And uh,
0: you got your PhD at George Mason, right?
2: Correct. I, yeah, got I, it. I did my PhD at George Mason. I, I, you know, I know really first time I was exposed i think in my public finance class i wrote a paper on fannie and freddie's you know off-budget
0: oh, funding, right?
2: funding mechanisms and uh and, and interestingly enough mark palin who's the current deputy chief economist there at fannie was in the class with me so ah. uh, you know who's somebody, a better
0: student do you remember
2: probably mark i'll give him you know, <laughs> you know but uh who's gone on to obviously great much greater things um so all that all that said you know had an opportunity to really kind of Learn the housing industry, you know, I, I was really more an industrial organization, market structure guy in, in grad school, um, you know, actually, you know, interviewed with Carl Shapiro for a job at DOJ, things like is that, that I thought I was going to go antitrust route, um, which, again, I should say decide side, I, I think does explain a lot of my approach to mortgage finance really is kind of an industrial organization mm-hmm. approach rather than say, a macro or housing approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, started working at the home builders and, and got to know, you know, people that, you know, you people, you know, Dave, Dave Siders, Stan Dubenis, oh, a Dave. lot of that, that yeah. crowd. Uh, Dave Crow was probably really my first big mentor coming out of nice man. Uh, co- college. So really learned, Learn the housing market from from those guys. Um, I do not miss spending eight hours a day parking SAS programs and things like that. So I'm glad to <laughs> have those days along behind me.
0: Well, um, now you have ChatGPT, maybe
2: Yeah, know. it's true. Or even better at FHFA, had other people to do it for me. There you <laughs> go. Even better. Yeah. Even better. But I fortunately knew enough about it to to judge what I was getting. Uh, you know, at, at, when I was at the home boaters, I got to know folks at the Harvard Joint Center, uh, and they invited me up for a year. Uh, Eric Balski, Kermit Baker really got to know those guys pretty well and worked primarily on the remodeling futures project that, that Kermit runs.
0: I think he just uh, retired. I
2: think yeah, he did. He yeah. did great, just great guy, tremendous, yeah, learned a tremendous guy. amount from from Kermit, and you know, also got to know Bill Apgar and, and Nick Racinas mm-hmm. during that time. So it really was. And, and interesting enough when I was at the Joint Center was when Nick and Bill switched jobs at FHA, and it really, really was one of the first times I ever ever thought about potentially public service for myself, just
0: hmm.
2: you know seeing their involvement in government during the Clinton years. Uh, went on to the realtors uh, after that NAR, um, spent uh, three years there, but overlapped with my good friend Lawrence Yoon who's, who's still there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then out of the blue one day got a phone call from the Senate Banking Committee, then under uh, Phil Graham. and the you know, it happened to be, I should say, one of the members of my dissertation committee happened to be previously the chair at Texas Am when Graham was there and was, oh, wow. and was friendly with Graham. So it was really just like, hey, any, anybody know an economist who knows anything about mortgage housing markets? And so again, really call came out of the blue, uh, really went up there, had a great opportunity and you know, for good or bad, depending on your perspective, I guess Graham had decided he was going to retire. Not long after that, so uh, I spent a year at HUD with Secretary Martinez, running primarily the RESPA office, mm. uh, Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act. Uh, I also ran the Manufactured Housing Program. Was the one who created the consensus committee there. Anybody wants to know more about manufactured housing than I than I ever wanted to. Uh, went back to the Hill six years with with Senator Shelby, where again. You know the topics i worked on flood insurance so for instance um, i'm not sure i like to publicly take too much credit for it but uh you know i'm the father of the mandatory deductible in the flood insurance program i got I that all right after the law so that's you I'll probably get some hate mail from that <laughs> um but you know worked on our katrina response worked on hero you know housing economic recovery response and, and was the primary drafter so Going to FHFA was something special for me because I really was part of the team that created the agency legislatively um, and and really had a lot of attachment to it from wanting it to be a success. I mean, I spent five years of my life trying to bring it, trying to birth it, if you will, in terms of the Hill. Uh, and then after, you know, I, I was a bit worn out after 2008 in the process. And, and we'd really started the Capitol Hill started to really get far more partisan. And, and so quite frankly, I was just done with it. You know, I just I could not go in anymore and, and and deal with it. So I had an opportunity, friends I knew at the Cato Institute, uh, spent several years there, helped set up their center for financial monetary alternatives, uh, helped recruit my George, my friend, George Selgin, to help us do monetary you know, really tried to put Cato, um, you know, on the map in terms of uh, financial reg and monetary. Uh, and then out of the blue, uh, I think first week of uh, December 2016, a friend of mine calls me and asked me if I'm interested in being um, Mike Pence's chief economist. And, wow. you know, I had known Pence a little bit, but not well. So I've spent two years at the White House. Um, 80% of my time was taxes and trade. So worked mm-hmm. on. Ah, uh, Tax Jobs Act. I worked on USMCA. Uh, I worked on our Japan economic dialogue. Uh, I, I have some small responsibility in getting the Japanese to buy more Idaho potatoes.
0: So oh, I'm there small, you
2: go. I gotcha. Contribution to trade policy, um, and then again, uh, financial services, you know, manufacturing, everything, thing across the board. I would describe the job as. Uh, 80% the role of NEC for the vice president and maybe 20% CEA. I mean, we didn't do oh, a cool. separate forecast, but, you know, we, we really were policy making, And uh, it was great. My, my, you know, good friend, Kevin Hassett and the team, you know, they, they provided tons of support for anything we ever wanted to do. Because
0: he's had a CEA at the time. Right? He
2: was. A, yeah. Kevin was the was the chair at the time. And really let us know, let me know that the staff would do any work I needed and it really was a great resource and they were a great team for me to work with. Um, And so, as you know, uh, at that time, uh, FHFA was an independent regulator. So you had former uh, North Carolina Congressman Mel Watt was still the director for two years in. Uh, I talked a little bit in a book about the process um, that got me there. And and there were actually a number of other candidates for the job in addition to myself. I think simply because many people got to know me and the vice president felt strongly about uh, my nomination, coupled with the again having worked on creating the agency, was that the you know the, I came out of the process and feel very lucky to have had the vice president and, of course, Senator Shelby's and, and other support, and uh, confirmed by the Senate in April 2019 and uh, two, almost two and a half years at FHFA, uh, you know, reminder, just about 11 months there before COVID hit, which sort of took over much of the agenda, which is probably true for many of us.
0: Well, we're going to uh, talk about that because uh, y- the book you just uh, mentioned, uh, Shelter in the Storm, is about your experience as FHFA director during that period of time and a lot to cover there. Um, Very amazing career actually. I, you know, I'd of course be I've been so. following yeah. you for a long time and admired your career. I didn't, but I didn't realize, you know, the, I didn't know you were at NHB, the home builders or at realtors and, uh, you know, quite a career. I, 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 I met, uh, vice president Pence a couple times at one time, very nice man.
2: He's a super nice guy.
0: Yeah. You know, I was at an AEI. That's another think tank, uh, function. And he was there speaking and we were kind of both, off in a different part of the uh, resort area and he just saw me and, he, and and I was of course a little reticent to go up to shake his hand but he came over and he spent like 15 20 minutes with me it was amazing
2: he, he really you know whatever you want may think about his his, his politics he's just a super nice guy super nice
0: down, yeah down
2: down to earth he's he's actually got a, a sense of humor well, I that was didn't very, come
0: through when I was talking to him. I no you know, well. I'm kidding.
2: I'm you kidding. Kidding. No, <laughs> no, I know get I, I, well, I, I don't often think it comes through like I say it because I think it's yeah. perhaps a surprise to some Surprise, that, yeah. That he he actually is pretty engaging in person. I was lucky I had an opportunity to travel a lot with him. I went to Asia with him in, in 2017, you know, course, part of our Japan dialogue. Um, and got to do cool things. I went to the DMZ with him, so you you get to do fun foreign policy aspects of it uh, but we did a tremendous amount of travel for tax reform listening sessions and, and other things so i i got to spend a lot of time with him and he truly my opinion just super decent guy super friendly guy and i should say this aside because you and i uh share this he and karen and the rest of the family huge pet people uh-huh. love their yeah. animals cats yeah. dogs bunnies snakes they got it all
0: oh well, really snakes the okay. son had
2: a boa i think the i think his son has a boa constrictor still so um they probably but, to keep that separated from the other pets yeah yeah i'm a
0: dog <laughs> guy but i don't know about the snake thing i don't yeah. know my wife would lose her mind if there was a snake uh, i have the same here yeah so um i was gonna say one other thing i can't remember what that was uh before we moved on oh I, this is it i was gonna ask you a question he's running for sure. president right
2: uh, yes, he is. Are yes, you going is. to
0: be involved in that campaign? Well, I mean, I,
2: I'll do what I can to help him, and we'll see how it evolves. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think he's really certainly his economics are are much much closer to mine. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think you know again his views are fairly consistent with mine in terms of economic policy, mm-hmm. uh, and I think he would put us in a, in a pretty good place in terms of economic policy. Mm-hmm. So, again, I, I hope he does well. He, again, has uh, the right instincts, you know, in my opinion. And, you know, I, and I think an underlying. there, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, you know, second to the first lady, there was probably nobody that President Trump spoke to more often and more, in, and more regularly hmm. uh, than the vice president. And they were very engaged in policy. And a lot of the big choices, even personnel, and of course, at the end of the day, in every administration, the president—that's the, where the buck stops. The president mm-hmm. makes choices, but Pence had a tremendous amount of imprint on economic policymaking uh, during those years. Mm-hmm. And, and so, again, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see how it goes.
0: Well, very cool career, uh, and here we are uh, now. That it's very clear you're a, a tried and true Houser, so-called Hauser, You're deep into the housing <laughs> housing finance system. Let's talk about the housing market right now. Uh, What's your sense of things?
2: Uh, Uh, You know, my sense of things is this is like one of the weirdest (laughs) housing markets, and then, and the time I've been following it. So let's touch on a couple of attentions. I mean, while of course, even in the Great Recession, you know what was going on in California, Arizona, Nevada was not necessarily what was going on in Texas. But today, you know, I can't think of a starkle contrast than say the southeast from the west, Uh, and so first of all, the markets just seem to be moving in very different directions. Of course, you know, I I think the fundamentals do explain that. You look at migration patterns, you look at where people want to move, you look at where housing is being built. Certainly, it's all explainable, but you know i remember for a long time the conversation particularly in the 90s and 2000s was sort of state level economic convergence mm-hmm. and 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 and, mm-hmm. and to me we're we're seeing a big divergence geographically that's one the other thing that you know really is probably which, which is really
0: just to make that concrete for yeah. for the listener the the western part of the us feel particularly california uh, kind of boise has yeah. always been the, the kind of the poster child down to phoenix that Part of the country is getting nailed, you know. A-
2: a- a- absolutely, That's what you mean? Well, yeah, well, right. West Coast in terms of you know housing prices or where where the declines are. Uh, you still you know continued you know either out migration or weak migration, weak mm. job growth, and and again just huge difference between what's going on in California and of course some of the western markets. It doesn't take a lot of people moving in from California mm. to, to blow up Boise, and it doesn't take a lot of people moving back to to deflate it. Um, so a lot of those uh, neighbors of California really got hit. But, you know, you're just seeing something very different in Florida, Georgia, Carolina. It's just a very different um, housing market. And, and then the other wrinkle, in my opinion, of what's very different is, you know, even though 2008 focused a lot, you know, on the foreclosure crisis and on single family, you know, we had a you know multifamily kind of mirrored what was going on with single family uh, in the 2000s. To me, I think we're seeing a big divergence between multifamily and single family. Uh, and of course, part of this is that, and I'm, and I'm mostly talking on the construction side here, but mm-hmm. um, so you're, you're having a big degree to which the uh, tightness in existing home sales, of course, because rate right lock in has supported single family construction in a surprisingly strong way. Whereas, you know, I think we're starting to see and have seen real weakness in multifamily. Uh, Of course, this depends on geography too, as I learned at NAR, location, 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 and and they really do differ. So not only are we seeing pretty big geographic differences, we're seeing pretty big differences um, in terms of market segmentation, in in, in my view. And I think it makes it very hard. um, You continue to see these things going in different directions. I think normally in the kind of... uh, pace that we've seen in fed behavior you would have expected probably a lot more to break in the housing market that has so there's certainly been more, res- more resiliency in the housing market um, than I think most of us expected Pro- perhaps probably where the Fed expected uh, yeah
0: particularly house prices right I mean yeah. yeah yeah by our index we we uh calculate an index repeat sales uh we're down what, Chris, two, three percentage points from the peak nationwide? Something yeah. like that. Uh, closer to two
2: now, we actually.
1: Saw closer some. to two.
2: Yeah. So again, it's, it's been, I mean, I think it's just been kind of unprecedented to kind of have mm-hmm. this degree of tightening with, I mean, not, I'm not certainly not zero response in the housing market, but mm-hmm. a lot less of a response than, than one would have expected, uh, you know. I'm still, you know, I mean, if you, if you ask me where, where I, where am I today compared to where I was a year ago, I'm probably more optimistic on the single family side than I was a year ago. Um, But equally, if not, maybe more pessimistic on the multifamily side. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, to me, a lot of it does come down to the job market. And, you know, we clearly have had, you know, since the middle of 2020, um, you know, the people forget, I mean, the, the recovery from COVID job wise was, was just, just been stunning.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, to me, the bottom line and takeaway for the housing market is what does the job market continue to do? Um, mm-hmm. Because I do think, you know, and this is if you want to get into this conversation, I, I'm a little bit more on the pessimistic pessimistic end of the spectrum in terms of what underwriting standards have been. And to say that mm-hmm. I think that mortgage performance and housing performance is much more tightly uh, related to the job market than it has historically been, in my opinion. And so, of course, the plus is is that as long as we continue to see uh, job growth, the housing market will do fine. Mm -hmm. If, in my opinion, we see significant job loss, then I think we're going to have trouble in uh, particular uh, segments of the mortgage market and the housing market. I don't think it's going to be systemic by any stretch of the imagination, but there are going to be pockets of distress if we see distress in the in the in the job market,
0: so so do you have a view on the direction of house prices here or where they're going to go? I mean, we we our our view has been, although I say this with less confidence, is that prices will still move south here, maybe not as much as we thought a year ago, but still kind of high single digit, you know, peak to trough decline. Only because without that, given where mortgage rates seem like they're going to settle, and given the state of the labor market and the incomes. To restore any kind of semblance of affordability in the single family market to get home sales back up to anything that's consistent with long-run historical norms, you do need to see some weakening in price. And it's gonna take some time because you got, as you said, that lock-in effect. Yeah. And we have to wait for life events for people to have to move to ha- actually transact and for prices to come in but th- that's kind of our sense of things. Is that consistent with your view? And,
2: and maybe I, I differ a little bit in magnitude, but qualitatively, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, to me, you know, fundamentally, the, the, the where prices are at, where incomes are at in, in most markets it just dictates to me. I mean, sure, I would love to see a boost in incomes that closes that gap, but I, I think that's unlikely. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, in A... I do think there's a bit of a composition effect here, you know, in that what what is being sold I think is different than what we may see in a normal market, uh, and certainly the you know heavier percent of new sales. But back to the income point, and I do think that you know a wild card will be once we start to resume student debt payments. I mean, is that how much stress is that going to put on payments and affordability? And and I'm of the view that you know we should have resumed it a long time ago, but but here we are. Uh, and that doesn't mean it won't have some drag or, or negative impact on the housing market. So I think the thing to really watch is what happens when student loan payments resume. You know, do we start to see stress there? Um, you know, so I, again, I'm I am in that where I think low, probably lower single digits, but some of this also mm-hmm. does depend on what inflation continues to do In, in
0: mortgage rates, I guess,
2: right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'm probably a little bit more. I, I'm more on the end of seeing mortgage rates probably normalize around the high fives and the six mm-hmm, before. Mm-hmm. And I think others may see it perhaps as much as a you know, percentage point lower. Or so, um, you know, again, if we think that the, you know, say 10 year treasury is going to normalize around four, uh, then to me, I think seeing a spread of around 200 basis points which admittedly is historically high, but mm-hmm. you know a lot lower than where we are today, mm-hmm. is kind of where I expect the range to normalize. Um, so I think if we can get to a point where both potential home buyers uh, and mortgage investors accept that uh, we're not going back to 4% mortgages, certainly not 3%, I think you'll see the market kind of pick up. So the way i you know my my, my finance guy aspect to say i think there's just a really big really bid uh, uh a large bid ass spread in the market and once things start to stabilize i think transactions can pick up again
0: yeah i just noticed some fixed mortgage rates are back up close to seven percent So crazy yeah
2: some of it you know a, lot, a large chunk of it in my opinion is just the prepayment risk i mean any sure. and. Problem to some degree is, you know, if a lot of mortgage investors think they're going to make a seven percent mortgage and it's kind of, you know, they're gonna get paid back four percent money in two years. Yeah. I think if we can get to a point where it stabilizes, say around six and everybody starts to consensus gets around that, then I think the prepayment problem is in a great degree.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I you know our, my sense is that if you're close to seven, then we'll get price declines. If you're closer to six, then maybe things stabilize. That's kind of sort of how it feels, yeah. you know, feels out there. Amazing how sensitive. It, I guess makes sense with how high house prices are. You mix in even a point on a mortgage rate, it makes a huge that's a, difference. That's a big difference. That makes a big difference. Hey, Chris. Before we move on, let me uh, turn it to you. Anything you want to ask Mark about the state of the housing market, or did I miss anything?
1: No, I think you got it. Right, I think we're not too far apart in terms. Yeah. Of the, Sounds uh, like
0: we're pretty similar. Oh, I did want to ask uh, Mark. You You kind of alluded to this qu- in quick passing underwriting, sure. and just as a preface, as for sake of disclosure, I'm on the board of directors of MGIC, a mortgage insurer, and I'm in the head of the risk committee. So I I look at credit quality pretty carefully. But you 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 seem to su- suggest. Yeah, the so let me parse that out really yeah.
2: quickly. Where yeah. I think I, I may be, you know, an outlier. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, I. I do get a little frustrated when people point to medians or averages because even in 2008 yeah. the median loan did fine. So Great I'm point. not, you know, the median's going to do fine next time. Great so, point. you know, and of course we don't, you know, we don't all share the same pool of equity. So, and of course the the overall system was never ne- negative equity even 2008. So I I feel I don't I recognize sometimes you point to the data you have. So, and I would actually say one of the really biggest surprises to me uh, when I took over at FHFA was how large of the portfolio for Fannie and Freddie is rock solid. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, there's a big chunk of it that will perform in almost any circumstance. Uh, but there's also, in my opinion, probably a 5 to 10% tail risk. Most of that tail risk, in my opinion, is actually not in Fannie and Freddie, it's in FHA. Um, And the couple of metrics I'm worried about. One, I think that there has been um, significant, what I call FICO inflation. And I would, Mm. compared to say 2005, I think the typical FICO score is probably about 25 points higher than it would be pre-2005. Part of that is the post, well, part of it even goes back to before 2005, the 2003 fair, accurate credit transaction, Act, I happen to be on the banking committee when we did, but even the the post 2008 CFPB changes. So A, regulatory changes, and then coupled with the decline in reporting activity for negative events that went on during COVID really kind of leads me. And again, it's hard to quantify, but my back of the envelope is 20, 30 points of FICO inflation have occurred. And and I think most of that has actually been at the bottom end. People who are 850 were gonna be in 850 otherwise. But So I think FICOs are inflated. Um, I do worry that DTIs are very high. In debt certain income. Par- yeah, certain, debt yes, to income. debt to yeah. income. And you know what we saw internally was the number one predictor of who took COVID forbearance in the Fannie and Freddie book was debt to income.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so I do worry that if you get job loss, this is why I go back to our, our point, that a lot of this rides on the job market. Uh, and if the job market remains okay, we'll be okay. But if the job market stumbles... I think you've got a sliver of high DTI, low FICO, high LTV borrowers who will have trouble, um, and and that worries me. And I think it'll be more significant than is than is commonly recognized.
0: Yeah, that, that's consistent with our you know our uh, uh, Chris has written a lot about the score inflation, which is actually shown up in the credit card and unsecured personal uh, lending. You know already you can see high high delinquency, and I, well, I think. I'm- go ahead.
2: I was going to say I'm glad because you know I mean yeah. you know my, my takeaway too is from a having looked at kind of the factories but talked to a dozen or so people in the industry and nobody really seems to want to go on the record so I'm glad you guys so have...
0: oh yeah and you can already see it in the FHA book right you can feel yeah. delinquencies are already rising pretty quickly and and that's at a three point seven percent unemployment rate so
2: yeah and I do worry I mean I know they, they haven't said what they're really what's how they're going to report this but you know there's a proposal. Um, you know, to have a partial payment where they would essentially take money out of the fund uh, to make borrowers current again without actually the borrower themselves having paid. yeah hmm. yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's not hmm. quite being finalized yet. and of course hmm. it's it's supposed to be similar to the payment deferral option that we created at FHFA. Um, but it's not clear how it would be reported. and you know hmm. for good or bad, I mean, at least in terms of an information, FHA delinquencies are to me the canary in the coal mine. They they'll go bad before anything else in the mortgage market does, and I do worry that we're we may be seeing kind of a um, lessening information value of FHA FHA delinquencies. But again, if they report to us how many of these partial claims they're doing, then we should be able to back end the numbers out. But it, it's just not clear yet.
0: So we've we've talked about the present. Uh, I want to now go to the past in your book, <laughs> Shelter in the Storm, and I'm not sure we're going to get to the future, Mark, uh, which is also really kind of critical. So I'm we will play.
2: eventually, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, but I'm going <laughs> to just get this out there right away and get you on the record, says saying yes, I want you back
2: if I, it's okay. I, I, happy to come back and okay. talk about what tomorrow may hold okay because the there's a mortgage mortgage finance policy load
0: of stuff to talk about fannie freddie conservatorship federal home loan bank system i just wrote a paper that
2: i've heard you, you know, jim, that. jim
0: jim jim parrot yep yeah, at urban um but let's talk about the past uh in the covet experience and in in the book you wrote and let me say i i as i told you before we uh signed on i uh, thought the book was very well written and, and enjoyed you. it very much i did notice uh my name. I was mentioned once in the book and I felt pretty good about the forecast. I still do, but I, that's okay. Yeah. That's beside the point. We don't know
2: okay. Yeah. But, um uh,
0: uh, but, uh, I think maybe, I'm not sure exactly where you'd want to begin, but I thought the, and you said that the book uh, is and to some degree addressing some of your pet peeves around what happened during that period. I mean, th-
1: yeah, good. Oh, sorry. sorry. I was
0: just going to say the one thing that kind of top of the list, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, is around the criticism you received around helping the mortgage servicers. Is that, is that correct?
2: I mean, that, you know, it, it certainly was the something where it was probably most in my mind when I started writing it. Uh, I mean, first of all, the top level message of the book, you know, I, it was mentioned at the beginning, I was on the banking committee in 2008. I had very strong feelings and, you know, I did mortgage oversight about how, you know, programs like HAMP and HARP were, were, were functioned and where I felt they fell short. And so kind of the the, the biggest theme of the book is, you know, here's what the things that I really didn't like about the 2008 response. And, you know, if, if by chance I would be in a position to do something about them and, and as fate would have it, I was why we did it differently this time and why I think that was a success. And then to kind of raise the question of, you know, what did we do that made sense solely because it was a pandemic that may or may not make sense in the future, because we will have recessions again, even if we don't have pandemics, let's hope not. Um, And then what are the things that should stay And, and to kind of have that conversation and also to kind of go through the why, you know, one of the things that's been very, um, interesting is a number of particularly industry people have read the book and said to me, oh, now I know why you did that. Of course, mm-hmm. I-, I had hoped to have been fairly transparent at the time, but um, you know, I do think it's a good precedent for policymakers coming out of government to explain, you know, their actions a little more in depth and, and why they made certain choices. And that's the biggest thing. It's like, these are all choices that were made and I wanted to help people understand why we chose a rather than B uh certainly you know i don't know fun's the right word but one of the more one of the more interesting parts of writing it was going back and reading some of the you know very gracious things that were said about me (laughs) in the press
0: (laughs) yeah you know, i mean i I, did by the way i didn't i I wasn't one of those guys and and you're not you know you know i I, yeah
2: always respected that you know uh even when you and I disagree, I've never felt you've made it personal. So, I appreciate uh, that. you know, and I don't really felt like you've ever, and, and certainly I apologize if you feel like that I've ever well, questioned you.
0: Mark, you're too nice a guy. I mean, how can, I mean, come on. It's impossible. Well, and,
2: it's, and it's to me, you know, I, I think we're both, I mean, you and I, you know, may well, and this could be another episode, have have very different models of how the economy works and maybe different assumptions. But, uh, you know, I think we're both trying to get through, you know, how does the world actually work? You know, how we're trying mm-hmm. to get to the end of this. Um, we're trying to understand what works. And to me, when people kind of en- engage in ad hominems and, and, and personal attacks, it's really just more an indication of, of the weakness. The reason that I repeat some of that stuff in the book is I want people to understand you know, especially now it's timely with, with, you know, SVB, First Republic, all these things that, you know, Mm. I've been in the seat where 99% of the phone calls and pressure you get is rescue, rescue, rescue. Mm. And I, and I wanted people to understand that that's, that's what you get. That is the pressure. That is the situation. There's almost nobody who calls and tells you, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should sit, you know, go slow and think this through. That's not, that's not, that's not how it ever goes. Um, and so, one of the more frustrating aspects, because we were rather generous, and I and I do talk about how we set up the programs, and probably the biggest change was really to let borrowers, you know, simply state their distress, you know, as I call the honor system, because to me, one of the real problems in 2008 was the paperwork shuffle. That you know, we took borrowers months and months to get in. You know, some borrowers, some lenders submitted fraudulent. Some stuff got lost. So I looked at this and said, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We we, we can't afford to set up a program that takes borrowers five months to get in. That, that that's not an option. That that option is off the table. Um, and because we also didn't means test it, which I think is actually an important aspect uh, of it, we made it easy to get in. Now, these programs are set up. Weeks before the CARES Act, and our intent had always been to get you in and then call you three months later and verify. And you know, we we it wasn't going to be you're in and that's it. It was going to be get in and we'll, and we're going to do the verification on the back end, not the front end.
0: And just quickly, the CARES Act was the first piece of COVID Correct. relief legislation passed under President Trump in March of 2020. I think it was two trillion something. Yeah, like that? yeah, two that's trillion right. deficit financed. And it's Ultimately, probably. The support was five trillion,
2: all in. Oh, yeah, we yeah. spent a
0: lot. We spent a lot, spent a lot But this uh, was two trillion, and, and there was believe, a lot of other things going on. And I too.
2: think that was also the big. The PPP was probably the biggest component yeah. of that. Five six
0: hundred billion of that was exactly. PPP, but that but was so for it, the small business. The exactly. Small business. Okay. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And so the CARES Act also codified a lot of what we had already set up. Um And I talk about the pros and cons of, of putting codification. So because the, we were we were essentially invoking the honor system, which of course. I try to be candid in the book about what were gambles, what were the uncertainties. And so there was a tremendous amount of debate about, well, if you make this easy to get in, everybody will take it. Uh, and that certainly was a possibility. We thought, however, as you know, we economists would say, we would make it incentive compatible. We would make it easy to get in, but A, we would be stingy. We weren't forgiving. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to forget mm-hmm. that there were broad calls for mortgage forgiveness, rent forgiveness. I mean, of course I had no money to do that even if I wanted to. But a we were going to make it um we were going to make it very clear that it's easy to get in but you were going to pay everything back. So and then we created some carrots. So for instance, you know, normally if you take some sort of mitigation forbearance in Fannie and Freddie, you have to make 12 on-time payments before you could refi. Mm. So we created big carrots. We said, you know, if you were always paid throughout your forbearance, you could immediately refi on upon exit of the program. And then if you had missed payments, all you need to do is make three on-time payments to be able to refi. So again, we created some stakes, we created some carrots to try to like, you know, modify how generous we were on the front end. But because of the generosity on the front end, there was a lot of concern that you know, the mortgage servicing community, uh, inter- so just the non-banks, I guess I should emphasize, um, would come under stress and and fail. Can,
0: can I stop you just very quickly, sure. just to bring the listener up to speed? So uh, the mortgage market currently, uh, I think 75%, 80% of all mortgage loans that are being originated, and that I think it was roughly the same back in the pandemic, are made by so-called non-banks. These aren't These aren't your traditional bank. These are independent mortgage bankers. And these institutions are generally smaller. There's some big guys, but there's a lot of smaller ones. And the the concern was at the time that uh, because of the uh, foreclosure uh, mitigation efforts, these servicers that are servicing the loans, these mortgage banks, had to continue to provide a payment to the investor. So they were shelling out cash, but they weren't getting mortgage payments from the borrower. Therefore, they're stuck in a Hard place, and therefore, now I'll turn it back to you.
2: Yeah. And, and much of the concern, I should say, the book kind of walks through, you know, quickly how we got to this. And, and again, a yeah. point to emphasis we are, we have a very, very different mortgage market today at 2020 than we did pre 2008. Yeah. And while some of these non banks are large in terms of volume, they all tend to be rather small in terms of balance sheet. And so the real question was, you know, their cash, uh because again, there are, tr- there are a significant number of depositories who do servicing. But A, as we remember, mm-hmm. remember massive amount of inflows and in deposits that weren't the same sort of liquidity concerns, they had a balance sheet. So it really was kind of limited. And so to me, if I can kind of put this into three variables that I, I think were, some were known, some were not known, or at least some were known to us and not known to the rest of the public. So whether there's got to be stress uh and of course, the question of whether stress would be systemic or would be a small number of institutions. Uh, first of all, was you know what are actual take up rates going to be? Um, And we had put together. I'll say as an aside, perhaps one of the most shocking things to me about FHFA when I started in April 2019 was there was no forecast function. There was no housing price mm-hmm. forecast function, mm-hmm. no housing market, no macro forecast function, uh, and so I hired. Uh, um, we got that from,
0: they got that from us, Mark. Just, yeah, yeah. Well, no, they, no, they got it from Fannie and Freddie. Who <laughs> might've got it from you. But, but, but,
2: and, no, and no I'm view, joking. The, the yeah. view is not that you don't look at what other yeah. parties say, but you also have your own internal view. So I had hired uh, Lynn Fisher to set that up. And 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 we were fortunate that that new division of research statistics opened, door, opened its doors in January, 2020. So uh, by the time COVID had hit, we'd gotten that staffed. And we had a pretty good model based on previous recessions, what we thought forbearances would be for the Fannie and Freddie book, given where we thought stress in the mortgage market would be in the labor market, and given the quality of the book. Um, and in my opinion, it turned out to be quite accurate. Uh, in March, I think I was uh, on TV with Diane Olik and Diane asked me where we you going to be. And I said, Dan, I think we're going to be around in the Fannie and Freddie book, uh, around 6% in the middle of. Bay, and lo and behold, we peaked around 6.7 in the Fannie and Freddie book. Of course, FHA and others were worse. But so, A, we had a pretty good forecast model. Now, just, again-
0: Just one more, sure. just, just to catch people up, because you know this, I know this, Chris knows right, this. That's but fair. Yeah, we're moving fast. So we're talking about the mortgage, the mortgage banks, the mortgage servicers. And uh, the question is, uh, how big a problem, yep. this cash problem do they have? Exactly. And you're saying, okay- first thing to consider is well how many people are actually going to take up the forbearance the mitigation because that's going to determine the size of the problem and therefore uh that's what you're talking about absolutely yeah. so yeah.
2: first first variable is what's uptake among borrowers yeah. that's that that's that's the first right. variable and that was probably where there was the widest range and again you know we had i think even our 95% confidence interval suggested it wasn't going to get above 15 20% mm-hmm. Worst case, but that's the first variable, uh, and, and that was where I would say most of the public debate was. The next two variables, uh, there was less public debate, largely because we we had information that others did not. And so, second variable is who actually bears the burden. Hmm. And so, for instance, uh, I mentioned earlier there are a significant number of depositories that are servicers, but I think less recognized is that about forty percent. Of the servicing responsibilities for the Fannie and Freddie book rest with Fannie and Freddie. So, for instance, and you know, if you go to the cash window and sell a loan, Fannie and Freddie take over the advance responsibilities. There are contracts where you can choose as a servicer to essentially buy insurance from Fannie and Freddie on the servicing front. So, all this said, only about a fourth of Fannie and Freddie servicing advances. Were the burden of non-banks. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people would scope out, here's the market, here's how bad it could get. Mm. And, of, and of course, pre-COVID, Fianney and Freddie, Freddie limited uh, non-bank services to four months obligation. We, al- we were in the process of aligning that. Um, so the second variable is how much are, uh, uh, you know, how much of A, the take up, is the responsibility of B, the non-banks. Mm. Um, and you know we started sharing that information, and 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 it's understandable. Um, I, I you know probably one of the hardest things I had to go back and forth describing the book was exactly how remittance schedules work for service. I, saw,
0: I read that. Yeah, I, I thought it was well written. Well, yeah. thank you because I yeah.
2: didn't. You know, it's not necessarily the most transparent yeah. issue, and it really was an extremely important part of the issue. And then the last variable is how much um, resources to the non-banks have, and so. We had, at the time COVID hit, uh, There, I think there were 346 non-bank servicers that Fannie and Freddie did business with. We had income sh- uh, statements, balance sheets. We immediately got on the phone with the largest 30, and servicing industry is rather concentrated, so the largest 30 got us probably 90% of the market, and we immediately said to them, you know, I've got your financials. Is this up to date? What has changed? And then we lastly also, you know, while on those phone calls not only did we ask what is your current status, we also asked what is your capacity to absorb servicing from others So we had an internal metric of this is how much servicing we could transfer before you know before there was really any risk of stress. And so again, I think the, the the public debate was over the first variable. we tried to get uh, both, The capacity for the industry and the burden of the industry, you know, I made public uh, in a June 2020 testimony, and we had tried to get some of that data out earlier and sharing it to try to have a sense of people how how good or bad this was going to be. And then, you know, we tried to work with the industry to to get there. First of all, I guess I've said once before. The situation at FHA and Jenny was far worse, mm-hmm. and 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 in fact, most of our concern for Fannie and Freddie servicers was not the service center of their Fannie and Freddie book. It was for those servicers who also did Jenny that there might have been, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a knockoff effect. Um, and so, for us, we just never, you know, maybe at any one time there were a small number of servicers. And while I don't. Name names. There, you can probably do a little googling if you get the description of the book. There were two large servicers who had private equity parents, and I'm actually not in the you know current vogue of being anti-private equity by and large. Uh, I think it serves a useful function, even if it's got some flaws. But there were these two private equity owners, or these two servicers had taken out literally billions out of these companies in 2019. And of course, investors take money out of companies. So there's nothing necessary nefarious about that. But when these companies had come to us and wanted Feeney and Freddie to provide them funding, we reminded them, you guys just took a lot of money out of these companies. Mm -hmm. And if you get into trouble, we'll transfer the service to someone else. So if you would like to maintain the value of those platforms, you might want to put money back in. And then once they figured out that we were serious, they put money back in. Mm -hmm. And those those platforms are around today, deserving, performing value. And a theme of the book really is this kind of… you know, argument and debate about, you know, what should be the threshold of response to mm-hmm. providing assistance. And, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, not to sound like a lawyer, but you know, my, my approach is it's, it's a rebuttable presumption against assistance and from where I sit, but it can be rebutted. You can provide enough data and evidence. And we were very clear throughout that time that show us the data you're looking at. Tell us what you see that suggests this is necessary which is very different than I think kind of the conventional view of, you know, when in doubt, bail it out. Mm. Not-
0: it, and that's a really important broader point. You try to, to tease out. You're saying, Hey, look, you know, the generally when we get into a scrape a crisis, the immediate reaction is for government to come in and backstop. And of course, at times that's absolutely essential. But in this time, in this particular case around the mortgage services, you're saying, look, I, I didn't do that. And it turned out. Okay. No problem. The servicers kind of navigated through; they managed through, and I didn't need to bail them out. But let me ask you a question around that, Uh, and this goes to the forecast I did on the take, effectively on the take-up. I assumed uh, that uh, policy that we were going to see in response to the crisis was the policy we had. That you know, I didn't count on five trillion dollars. Who would have thunk five trillion dollars in support? UI and food and student loans and on and on and on PPP uh, and also the Fed's response was also yeah. pretty amazing it's zero lower bound massive QE yeah in fact the re- the you mentioned the refi boom in your book whole chapter on it you know you saw mortgage rates go from three and a half to four before the pandemic to a record believe it or not. Two and a half percent. I mean, insane. Unbelievable. Yeah, insane. insane.
2: Yeah. Just giving giving money away. <laughs>
0: and and of course, the economy, as you said, you know, amazingly yep. turned around. So, uh, you know, it, it, to uh, my perspective, uh, one reason why you didn't have to step in, why the mortgage servicers kind of navigated through is because they they did get bailed out by everybody else.
2: So it, it's certainly a reasonable. Argument to say everybody got everybody got bailed out, and of course, you know, I suspect that you know you and Chris struggle with this on a daily basis, which is kind of teasing out causality from correlation. Now, as I mentioned, you know, we had built a model in early March, our econ team looking at historical performance, and of course, that historical performance embedded. So, you know, we we did expand unemployment insurance benefits in the Great Recession. You know, so there are some policy responses that, you know, yes, they weren't as generous as they were this time around. And uh, I mean, I know I'm an outlier to say, uh, I'm not of the view that we were stingy in on the fiscal side in 2008. I'm of the view we spent a lot of money and we helped a lot of people. We just structured it. You know, I'm more of the Casey Mulligan view that we structured those programs in a way that disincentivized work. But all that said, um, certainly our forecast incorporated previous policy responses. So we certainly didn't take a baseline of government will do nothing, but we did take a baseline arguably of the response will be similar to perhaps the great recession response, which again, in my view was generous. So all that said, um, the trying to tease this out and say, you know, would it have been worse? How much worse? i like to say, you know, our 95 percent. Just to put a
0: point on that in the yeah. Great Recession, because we've obviously done a lot. of, I've done a lot of yeah. work in this area. <clears throat> the total fiscal response to the Great Recession was 10 percent of GDP. I'm rounding, obviously. Yeah. The fiscal response to. Uh, the pandemic was 25% of yep. GDP.
2: So more, much, much more than would have been what normally expected. And yeah. so certainly our modeling efforts that you know suggested that we were going to see single digit forbearances, you could say incorporated, say, a 10% fiscal okay. response. Okay. And I think it is an open question. I mean, I, I certainly am a believer that fiscal response does at some point have diminishing marginal utility. Um, so I'm not... I'm not convinced that 20% is twice as good as 10% in terms of a, a fiscal response, but all that said, you know, parsing through, you know, would it have been different? And like I said, the, 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 the financial data we had such as, you know, who was going to bear this, what was the uptake? I personally think the probably biggest thing that really drove And again, you had your forecast and I, and I guess I could turn the question back to you with my observation or rather the internal data we had that only about a quarter of Feeney and Freddie servicing responsibilities was with the non-bank. I'm oh, assuming that—that's that a great
0: point. I, I'm, been, I'm assuming
2: that had to be new to you. Oh, that, that you didn't yeah, know.
0: I did it, Of course, I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't take the next step and say should you should provide support to the servicing industry. I yeah. I didn't take that step. I just did the exactly. first step. Variable number one, variable A. Which of I, course
2: I, is you know why we created you know the forbearance and why we set that yeah, up, set yeah. that up and and so again and there were and we it was very you know surprisingly large number I mean I think you know on, on one end I think about fifteen percent of Fannie and Freddie forbearance borrowers took it for a month you know and left yeah. and you know probably about a fourth took it for th- three months or less and left so a lot of people took it got back on their feet. Um, you know, obviously there were um, a lot. You know, I think less than one percent of Fannie and Freddie forbearances had LTVs over ninety-seven. So these mm-hmm. were generally, and and that's part of what went into our modeling effort as well, which is these borrowers are in pretty solid shape. Mm-hmm. But you know, again, it's obviously very hard to parse out. Mm-hmm. You know what was the econ wide response of the massive amount of stimulus you know we provided, and of course, how do you parse that out from you know just like the arguments over how much of inflation is fiscal versus monetary? You know, that's what you macro guys try to figure yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite debate it, now, it, it, you know, and it's not sure. easy, you know, and, and
0: that's it, so makes it fun. Hey, I know we're running out of time and I want to respect your time. I, I do want to ask one. Sure. More, one more question around the mortgage servicing. Now looking forward perspective, and that is, uh, there's a lot of concern, worry, and this was also brought up uh, in the context of that uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and everything else. That uh, these institutions are financially fragile in the sense of a f- funding. You know, they rely yeah, on warehouse, warehouse lines with JP Morgan Chase I'm just making that up the big guy.
2: And Chase is in a warehouse lender so that Yeah yeah it,
0: it, this is an example and you know they can get into capital markets and raise some debt so forth and so on but the the funding sources are somewhat tenuous when you get in a risk off environment and uh if they were to get cut off from the funding and that meant the mortgage market because they are 75 80% of originations could would be significantly impaired go it, that would hurt the housing market significantly. And obviously that would be a pretty significant threat to the economy in that context. First of all, am I characterizing this correctly? And second, I mean, of all, there, what should we do about it any, or great, anything?
2: Great great question. So on one hand, um, I don't think any one of these institutions is systemic in the sense of that we could right. not resolve its assets in a way that would have major disruptions to the economy and mortgage market. So, you know, Absolutely. for instance, we had in uh, fall of 2019, DiTech, with a larger, rather large servicer who went through a bankruptcy court in New York and we transferred, you know, its servicing to new res. And we were able, there were bumps, but partly because you had to deal with the court, not because of the process itself. And so Fannie and Freddie have a large history. Um, you know, there's even the ability we can take a failed, or Fannie and Freddie rather, I should stop saying we, um, Fannie and Freddie can take a failed large servicer, essentially cram down the balance sheet, turn it into a subservicer without leave, without firing any of the employees. So you can take all the people that are there and just redo the financial side of the company where, of course, the current owners are out, but you've got all the same infrastructure. So, and and these are things we walk through and that we stress test. So all that said, and, and you know you don't really want a world. But that's standing. not the
0: scenario, right? The scenario isn't one guy or five guys. Yep. It's like it's, it's fifty exactly. guys, or five hundred guys get cut off all at once because we're risk off. You know, yeah. big time risk off. What happens?
2: It, it, it certainly is a concern, and, and I and, and again, one of the things we did see was that the bank regulators, particularly the OCC, were very very hostile to any extensions of further lines of credit during COVID to the non-banks. I mean, and this is what we saw in 2008. And quite frankly, every crisis, you will see regulators kind of circle the wagon of the institutions they regulate. Like your problems are your problems. My problems are my problems. That's how it will work every time. And we're naive if we pretend otherwise. And so yes, uh, the fact that many of these institutions are extremely uh, reliant on warehouse lines of credits and depositories that can get yanked or not get extended, you know, is a real fragility. And part of the reason I wanted to write, I thought it was important to write the book is there are really uh, numerous weak parts in our mortgage finance system that we should be concerned about. Now, I, of course. You know, I think we should go back to more of an originate and hold depository model. Not, not that there's not problems there. Another
0: podcast market.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a, this, it's always a matter of picking the least bad option when it comes to the mortgage finance yeah. system. So, uh, I I share the concern. Um, you know, I would rather see us try to find a way to get depositories back into this business. And I talk a lot about the non-banks and the fragilities in that mm-hmm. sector. Uh, In the book. And it is really worrying to me. Um, You know, again, I don't think the approach should be we bail them all out. I think, Mm. you know, because this is what frustrates me with the kind of, uh, you know, when in doubt, bail it out. I think you and I both agree that there's there's some degree of moral hazard created, which results in perhaps greater leverage. And of course, we always say in Washington, "Well, we'll come in and we'll put regs in on the back end and we'll fix all that." Well, that rarely ever happens in an effective manner, as as proven by SVB and other institutions. So, to me, you know, I take moral hazard very seriously. Um, I am extremely skeptical, having been inside the regulatory process, of at our uh, actual on the ground ability to control it, and, and so I worry that you know. To, uh, one path we could have do- gone down would have been to provide uh, 13-3 Fed assistance to the non-banks, and then created some big regulatory infrastructure around non-banks. And I think it would have left the the, the system actually more vulnerable in the long run, not better. Uh, mm-hmm. And it would have it, it would have left it would have left uh, left us with federal ownership, you know, of this issue. And of course, it would have been better for those non-banks. But you know. The solution to having regulated depositories out of the mortgage market is not to regulate everybody else out of the mortgage market. The solution is to come up with a better mortgage finance system. Uh, and so, I, I let's leave. It, we can leave it there and say, you know, a big, a big takeaway from the book is we have a lot of problems in our mortgage finance system. To some regard, whether it as you've mentioned, large amounts of of, of assistance that were provided by COVID that allowed us to dodge some bullets. Um, there's a lot that needs to be fixed and a lot that needs to be done. is certainly a big takeaway from the book,
0: yeah. it was a great book. Uh, I recommend it to everybody. And uh, definitely want to have you back uh, to talk about the future of Fannie and Freddie and the Federal Home loan bank system. I will say I just got a notice. no joke. It says a tornado is coming, and we should yeah. go in the basement. I'm not kidding. I'm not I don't kidding. doubt it. I don't yeah. doubt it. Be so safe. you got it too. That's yes. a, that's a, that buzz you just heard. Yeah, maybe we should go to the basement.
1: Yeah, Uh, let's do some uh, risk management. Let's do
0: some risk management. Yeah, there's no question about this. So, so Mark, we're gonna. uh, I think it ended here. Thanks so much for spending spending time with us and explaining the. And again, I recommend the book uh, to everyone out there. uh, Shelter in the storm, uh, from the storm, I should say. Shelter from the storm. storm. Uh, Great, great title. And um, we'll. uh, I'll talk to you soon.
2: Thanks. Be well. Be safe. Take care.